We joked about how maybe we can uh, stick a compact camera underneath uh, one of these glider planes and fly that over the forest in Sumatra, Indonesia, and maybe we can use that to detect orangutan nests and uh, perhaps that would enable us to count them and uh, study their populations. Uh, so that was the genesis or the beginning of the idea of, of conservation drones. In this episode, I'm talking with Lianpin Ko, a biologist and conservation drone pioneer, who's a full professor at the National University of Singapore, as well as director of the Center for Nature-Based Climate Solutions and Tropical Marine Science, Lian Pin is also a member of the parliament in Singapore and a former researcher and postdoc at ETH Zurich. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. Lian Pin, thank you for joining us from Singapore. You're our first guest from the Far East, and we're delighted to have you here today. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Fantastic. So you are a scientist and now a member of parliament. Are those similar? Are those this different? Where do you have more impact? Oh, those are tough questions. <laughs> uh, to, to start with, uh, I have actually just completed my term as uh, a nominated member of parliament. It ended in July uh, after having been in parliament for two and a half years. Uh, it's a special uh, scheme here in Singapore whereby we have uh, nine seats reserved for nominated MPs uh, as opposed to elected MPs. Uh, huh. So it's, uh, it's to help uh, the parliament have adequate representation from different uh, stakeholders or segments in society. So coming to your question about whether the work in parliament is different than the work in my you know, day job, academia, they are different in many ways, but also similar in other ways. I guess my academic job is more focused on research and education, uh, you know, doing lots of uh, working on research projects and training uh, new PhD students, whereas the work in parliament is more about educating the public, more about being involved in policy discussions, debates about voting for new bills and so on. Although they are similar in the sense that my speeches and my involvement in parliamentary debates are usually around the topic of the environment, on sustainability, similar kinds of issues to my academic work. So the issues overlap and the role and importance of education and articulating and communicating things sound like they overlap. Yes. But it sounds like your audiences are different. That's right, very different. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Well, how did you start being interested in the area of biodiversity and the environment? Good question. I grew up in Singapore in the 1980s. That reviews my age a bit, huh? But I was, right. <laughs> I was probably the last... It's published uh, on Wikipedia. You're oh, good. yeah, that's right. I was probably <laughs> the last generation of Singaporeans to have had some experience of living in a more village-like environment, a more rural environment. So I remember on the weekends, my parents would bring my sister and myself to visit our grandparents in the more rural parts of Singapore. And I spent a lot of time catching... Uh, spiders, catching butterflies. Just, uh, butterflies having... I get, spiders not so much. 
Yeah, we catch them to fight. They are, they are, they are jumping spiders that, that you can catch and then you can have a combat between two spiders, two jumping spiders. It's, it's one of those things we, okay. we do in right. Singapore as, as, as kids. Um, <laughs> so, I had, I, so that experience uh, was, was, was wonderful. But as I grew up, that opportunity to interact with nature um, began to be replaced by, of course, high-rise high buildings, you know, urbanization, urban sprawl, and eventually there is less of the opportunities to, to do such things. But then on the other hand, I benefited from the development, the pace of development in Singapore, the economic payoffs and so on. So growing up from young till my college days in Singapore, I've always grappled with this duality of having an affinity towards nature, but then also at the same time understanding the need for economic development. So when I went to do my PhD and then later on in my postdoc, my research has always been trying to figure out how to reconcile these two priorities. What was your thesis about? I did read that it was trying this question of how do you manage the needs to preserve an ecosystem and give environmental protection with what society actually needs. Right, right. Because you're right. I think of Singapore and I think of expressways and high-rises. <laughs> I do not think of any kind of village or other kind of system. So uh, my PhD work uh, that's prior to my joining uh, uh, ETH was on the environmental impacts of oil palm agriculture in Southeast Asia. Huh. Uh, that was back This in is when you were at Princeton? This was when I was in Princeton, early 2000s. I did most of that work back here in, in the region, in Southeast Asia. In fact, I had the opportunity to live in an oil palm plantation for a couple of months during my PhD work. So it started with me being very interested in understanding the impacts of oil palm agriculture on biodiversity, on native wildlife and forests. But as I got the opportunity to interact with the plantation managers, with the local communities. Again, I began to see the local perspective, to understand why there's a need to also uh, be planting oil palm and to grow that sector. So again, my PhD thesis ended up being, it was, the title actually reviews my thesis. It's, it's the oil palm conundrum, right? Understanding the environmental impacts on the one hand, but then also uh, understanding the economic importance of oil palm for the countries that are uh, uh, big growers of that, that crop. Now, Lian Pen, wait one sec. When you say oil pump, is this palm oil or is this like... Yeah, it's, it's palm oil. Black oil. No, it's no. It's palm oil. It's palm oil. Typically, we refer to the... the plant and the fruit as oil palm and the, the oil as palm oh. oil. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Thank you. I didn't realize that. I was thinking you were talking about drilling for oil. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And what was it you worked on when you were at the ETH? You came there to do a postdoc? I went to the ETH right after graduating from Princeton. The first project was really an extension of my PhD work in that I started to look at how oil, uh, palm oil is being used for biofuels around the world. At that time, it was, there was a great interest in, in biofuels and biodiesel. And I was looking into how that might be, well, the, basically the, the, the pros and cons of doing so. Because on the one hand, you would be replacing, you could be replacing fossil fuels with biofuels. But on the other hand, if we convert our forests to grow 
more oil palm, for example, then you would also have an environmental impact in another way. So again, it's grappling with these, these complexities. Then later on, after my postdoc, still at ETH, I was fortunate enough to be awarded a Swiss National Science Foundation professorship. And so I started or began as a, an assistant professor at ETH for a few years before moving on. Yeah. And was it also at the ETH where you started to be interested in drones? Yes. Uh, so how did that start? Because that feels like a jump, speaking <laughs> of spiders. Not really. It's, it's all connected in some way. During my oil palm work, I was also very interested in the biodiversity that, that, that was being affected by oil palm expansion, in South, especially in Indonesia, parts of Indonesia. One of my colleagues, Professor Serge Wich, who had been working for many years in Indonesia on orangutans and how orangutans are affected by oil palm, came over to ETH, one of the cafes, and then we just sat around. I was talking about oil palm agriculture, I was talking about orangutans, and then somewhere along the way during our conversation, I also mentioned Switzerland is great for flying remote-controlled gliders, toy planes. Yes, uh, that's right. They and have fields and clubs, and it's a big deal. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and then we joked about how maybe we can uh, just uh, stick a, a compact camera underneath uh, one of these glider planes and fly that over the forest in Sumatra, Indonesia, and maybe we can uh, use that to detect orangutan nests and uh, perhaps that would enable us to count them and uh, study their populations. Uh, so that was the genesis or the beginning of the idea of, of conservation drones. Very cool. Because in your TED talk, you talk about you just it's basically a bottle aircraft and you add a small computer and a camera and a couple sensors and a GPS and voila, you're, you're done, right? Right, right. And, and the amazing thing was neither of us was a computer scientist or an engineer. So we had no knowledge of how to put those things together. But thankfully, the internet is a great resource. We could find all the information we needed, and we had some time to play around and finally got it to work. Got it. Let's talk about biodiversity for a sec. Biodiversity hit the headlines in December when the COP meeting in Montreal put together, what was it called, the Global Biodiversity Framework. That's right. Just wondering, especially at that time, you were still having two hats of the politician and the scientist. What is your sense about the urgency around biodiversity? And are we on the right track to start to addressing it? What's our status here? Right, I, I, and, and the other event that sort of happened, uh, overlapped uh, at around that time was, of course, everyone was coming out of the pandemic, right, the COVID pandemic. Right. So in many of my conversations and also my discussions with stakeholders, I always like to remind people I'm talking to of the fact that even though we are coming out of the pandemic, there are actually two even bigger and in many ways uh, more insidious crises or challenges that the global community is facing. And one of them, of course, is the climate challenge. But the mm -hmm. other equally serious one, significant one, would be the biodiversity crisis. And in, in some ways, the world has been paying more attention to the climate crisis. There are lots of international frameworks and efforts being supported and being developed to drive climate action. Uh, of course, although much more can be done. But then when it comes to biodiversity, 
short of the Kunming Montreal conference and what followed from that, I think we are still lagging far behind compared to the efforts that we are putting into addressing the climate crisis. I also like to add that, in fact, the the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are closely uh, intertwined, both in terms of their impacts uh, on society and also their solutions. When I came back to Singapore three years ago, after having been around for 16 years all over the world, when I came back to Singapore three years ago, I set up this Centre for Nature-Based Climate Solutions, looking at the nexus between nature and climate. Very cool. What caused you to return to Singapore? A couple of reasons. On the personal front, uh, of course, our parents, the parents of my wife and mine are getting old. You know, they're now in their 70s, so there's always... That's not old. <laughs> they kept Everything's us, relative, but They kept really. telling us they're, they're getting old. <laughs> <laughs> and you listen to them? All right. Yes, there's always that, I guess, cultural practice or desire or, or, yeah, to come back and to, to spend more time with them. So that's why we came back, my wife and I. But professionally, I think it's also a good time to come back to Singapore, given the amount of attention now on sustainability efforts, how Mm -hmm. Singapore is wanting to transform itself into a more sustainable uh, city, wanting to be a climate services hub to uh, provide services for the rest of the region. And Singapore also has a problem in terms of lack of talents in this area. I, having been away for so long and having had some experience in this area, decided to come back and see how I could potentially contribute. Very cool. How did your years at the ETH, as a postdoc, as an assistant professor, as a self-taught technology entrepreneur, how did those years at the ETH prepare you for what you want to do? and where you're going. It's uh, my formative years, that and also my years in Princeton, in that I was exposed to an international community, a much more international community than, uh, for example, in Singapore when I was in college. So I had to understand how the different cultures are interacting with one another in a very multicultural environment like ETH. I also, as part of the training to be an academic or researcher, got to interact with excellent uh, professors and colleagues and fellow scientists. That also contributed a lot to my uh, ability to grow as a scientist. And geographically, I think uh, the opportunity to be at ETH in the midst of many other excellent universities and research centers in Europe also allowed me to easily interact, to just travel over to the UK, to Germany, and all the other parts of of Europe, uh, and and interact with an even larger uh, cohort of scientists. And all of those things, I think, were very very valuable uh, uh, experiences for me in, in my training as a scientist. You've published pretty widely, if I understand correctly, and had oodles and oodles of citations, like 24,000 or something crazy. Are there professors you still stay in close touch with at the ETH? Yeah, sure. Uh, My mentor when I was a postdoc was Professor Jaburi Gazul. I believe he's still there, still leading his ecosystem management laboratory. 
In fact, after I left, even when I was there, I began to introduce other students and researchers from Singapore to join this mm. group. So there have been at least one other Singaporean scientist that passed through this lab. So Lian Pin, you mentioned you were away from Singapore for 16 years before you came back three years ago. What did you do in those 16 years? How did, can you describe how that laid out? Yeah, sure. Interestingly, I, the reason, one of the reasons I left Singapore was because before I left, when I was still in college in the US, in Singapore, I went for an interview, a scholarship interview. And in telling the interviewer that I studied, I was studying butterflies and birds, he told me, oh, butterflies and birds can't make money for Singapore. So I left. Uh, that was in the <laughs> early 2000s. <laughs> now you left because you didn't think he had enough imagination? Or you left because you thought, I want to go to a place that, I want to go find something that will make a difference for Singapore? Both, both. Both. Also because I wouldn't be able to find a job in Singapore if I stayed. So I left in the early 2000s. I went to the U.S. to a nice college town in New Jersey that was Princeton University and studied ecology under the tutelage of Professor David Wilkoff, who was in the School of Public Policy and International Affairs. After being in Princeton for four years, or three or four years, went over to Zurich, of course, joined ETH as a postdoc, and then started my assistant professorship for a couple of years. Uh, then started applying for a proper job because uh, those were not tenured jobs. I, I, I got an offer from two places, one of which was uh, the University of Adelaide in, in South Australia. Eventually, I, I accepted the offer, went over to Australia, spent uh, five years there as a, a professor, first as an associate professor and then got promoted to a full professor. That was also coinciding with my, the time I started experiencing or having a midlife crisis. I was 40, actually, when I was promoted to full professor. And suddenly, That's pretty young, right? As yeah, far as I understand the world young. of academia. Yeah, exactly. So I was. I kept asking myself. You're so done. You finished. Am I done? You're am all I set. Gonna, yeah. What am I going to do for the rest of my life? <laughs> so I. So I started being more involved and started engaging with the NGO world, and that's how I started to be involved in some of conservation international's efforts in the mm -hmm. region. Got to know them, and eventually I was offered a position with CI back at, in the U.S. And so I left. CI is Conservation International. Conservation right? International, sorry. Okay. Yes. So I gave up my tenure to the horror of my wife. And, <laughs> and I'm sure your parents, who were very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I don't think they really understand what this tenure thing is. It's, it's very abstract for most people. But anyway, I gave up tenure, left uh, Australia, and went uh, back to the US. Um, but this time, I managed to negotiate with my employer, with Conservation International, for me to be working remotely out of Seattle, because uh, I never lived on the West Coast, so I, I thought, oh, maybe we should give it a go. Uh, so we moved to Seattle. Great coffee there. Great from coffee. From what I understand. Yeah, excellent coffee. Uh, and so we lived there for two to three years before uh, this opportunity in Singapore came up, and, and uh, for the reasons that I described, I came back to Singapore. Got it. So it allowed you to see a different kind of rainforest, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, very different from the ones I'm familiar with. Very, very cool. Thank you. I would love to close by asking a few questions that we always try to address 
in these conversations, if that's okay. But Leanne Pin, thank you. That was a great overview about a really, really interesting and high-impact journey. Thank you. So I understand that you are a science fiction fan and that you like science fiction movies. So tell us, what are your top three? I'm a little bit of a nerd as well, so oh, we really? can have a good debate <laughs> on this one. I guess my top one would be maybe a bit of a cliche. It's Star Wars and, and all the, the universe of movies and now TV series uh, associated with that universe of Star Wars. The second one is Foundation. Okay. <laughs> it caused me to reread the books. Ah, great. So those are my top two. I don't really have a third. I think I'm quite obsessed with those two. (laughs) (laughs) Given the number of spin-outs, I can understand that. And what about books or podcasts? What kind of books or podcasts do you like to either read or listen? I used to read... I don't have much time nowadays to read. And podcasts is still something very new to me. I grew up not listening to podcasts. So... Everyone is telling me to get into the habit. But when I, was, when I had time to read, <laughs> I remember growing up reading lots of popular science books. Dawkins is one of my favorites, Richard Dawkins. So he wrote The Selfish Gene, for example, which had a huge influence on my understanding of well, life, of human behavior, and, and so on. Huh. And then he had a couple of other equally fascinating science fiction books. I had. I also was heavily influenced by, or not not influenced anymore, I guess. Uh, but at that time, when I was younger, those pop philosophy type of books, I remember reading and being captivated by Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Well, that's because it was a great book. (laughs) (laughs) Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think that was what it was called. It just conjured up. I don't remember the details anymore. It was too long ago. But I just remember (laughs) being fascinated by the idea of being on a bike and riding through vast expanses of land and then being able to think about just philosophical questions. Yeah. Yeah, so those are some of my favorites. That's great. In your years in Zurich, as you described, you said there was a cafe that you went to hang out where you had this pivotal conversation. What were your favorite places in Zurich? I think that Green Cafe, I think it's called Green Cafe. It's just a sort of a courtyard within the building I was in. It's where all the students and staff would be gathering for their tea breaks or coffee breaks. So that, that's one of my favorite places to go, to hang out. The other one would be around the lake, of course. I remember spending lots of weekends uh, just walking around the lake, going on that ferry to, what's the town on the other side of the lake? Rappersville? Uh, that's right, Rappersville. That's a beautiful, uh, that's a long but just lovely ride. It's just on that ferry and then just doing nothing, just enjoying the sights and, and, and having a sip of my favorite Swiss beverage, uh, Rivella. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> really? I never developed the taste for that one. I love it. Uh, every time I go back, I have to get a Rivella blue. The blue Rivella one. Blue I was about to say, which color? <laughs> okay, good. We'll remember that. When you were young, you described growing up in a different kind of Singapore. What did you want to be when you grew up? When I grew up or when I was So let's say you were 10 years old. Mm. What did you want to be when you grew up? Maybe not when I was 10 years old. Maybe when I was like 
12, 12, 13, 14. Okay, that's fair. I actually wanted to be a musician. I was very interested in music. Like most Singaporean kids, my, my parents sent me to piano lessons and guitar lessons, but I was more interested in songwriting, in, in, in singing in a group. I was part of a boy band, actually, when oh, I was that that's the age. best. <laughs> Am I going to find any recordings in yeah, MySpace? No, it was all in, in Mandarin or Chinese. Uh, but we wrote our own songs. We went for competitions. We won a few competitions. Oh, cool. And at one point, I even told my parents, uh, I'm going to quit school and, and just go to uh, this college of audio engineering or whatever. That freaked them out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, they, 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 they were very nice. They talked me through the reasons why. I should at least complete my college uh, education, which I did, and then I gave up on that silly idea. And yeah, went on but the path. It might not have been a silly idea. You just never know, Lian Pin. Maybe, maybe. But I'm very happy with, <laughs> with what eventually happened. Yeah. I, I understand. And what sparks your curiosity today? You're still, what is it that you would like to learn about? I think I am motivated by figuring out how to motivate people to act to address the challenges that we face how to make them do stuff how to make them take action take action quicker and make bold action do bolder things for the climate and also for biodiversity thank you and now i have a final question for you lian pen you have the greatest scribbles and drawings and diagrams on that wall behind you. What is on that wall? Tell us about that. Uh, uh, lots of ideas. And can uh, I get a wall like that? This feels really <laughs> boring. Right, right. So, so I was lucky enough to be given a new space when I came back to Singapore. We now have actually about 50 people in the center that I set up including four professors and the rest would be students and researchers. When they renovated this space for the centre, I asked them to just, just paint the wall something that I can write on. Uh, so they made it the uh, whiteboard essentially. Uh, so these scribbles are things that my students and staff and I uh, would be discussing whenever we have our meetings and they're just some random collection of thoughts and ideas, uh, some of which actually resulted in more publications. There, there are also, of course, passwords, which maybe is not a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> we, we won't go into detail there. We're okay. not going to zoom in. That's right. Okay. Lian Pin, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for a great conversation and letting us hear some of the stories about your journey. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Susan. I really enjoyed the conversation with you, too. I'm Susan Kish, host of the ETH series, We Are ETH. Telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. Take a moment and subscribe to this podcast and join us on whatever platform you use to listen. And give us a good rating on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at L Media and ETH Circle. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Mm-hmm.